Um, hey, everybody, welcome to the Hango Show. This is your host, Tango Wood. And tonight, um, uh, it's Memorial Day today. And uh, if you listen to the episode I did with uh, my friend Jay back about a month ago, I guess, we kind of teased what we were going to be talking about tonight. Um, and I really I, I, I wanted to talk to you before about this um, on the show. But and I don't know why I thought that you might be against talking about it because you've always been very open from the first time I met you, you were very open about talking about your experience. Um, but still, anytime you lose a parent, it's, it's gotta be hard. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know that experience. I don't have that experience. Um, I know my mom has a hard time talking about my grandparents passing still, you know, um, let's consider it's Memorial day. Um, this is going to be a, a bit more of a somber show than I usually do, I think. Um, but my friend Jay here, um, how you doing, Jay? I'd at least say hi to you first, shouldn't I? <laughs> I'm doing great, man. It's been a it's been a good month, and uh, since I last saw you. But uh, yeah, doing really good. Good man. Um, if you heard Jay on my show before, like I was saying, you uh, you kind of know. Uh, he lost his father during the first Gulf conflict back in, in the early 90s. And I thought, you know, what more of an appropriate day to talk about that than Memorial Day? Because I think we, we, we as Americans, we get caught up in Memorial Day as being um, a day to grill out, a day the pools are open for the first time, the beaches are open for the first time, um, the day off from work. And over the last probably three or four years, it's really hit me is you know it should be more of a day of remembrance than a day of celebration because it's it's a day to memorialize the men the women the, the the soldiers the sailors the marines the airmen who have gone before us and um made the ultimate sacrifice um so jay i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let you start from the beginning wherever you want to start from and um just share your story with, with my listeners please yeah, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna take you all the way back to January or excuse me, December of 1990. So in December of 1990 um, was the last Christmas I spent with my mom and my dad. I was 11. I just turned 11 years old in November, and that is the kind of pinnacle of memory that I have. That's kind of that last hurrah type situation. So it's kind of burnt into my mind just because of all the things that happened around it. So, you know, family traditions, all the things that people, different people do and things of that nature. And, um, it, it, you know, this was 90, so it, there was no cell phones, no, you know, plasma TVs or anything like that. So we're sitting around in the living room. Can't we call it camping out? I don't know if any of your listeners have ever done that, but throw a bunch of blankets on the ground, watched it's a wonderful life. Um, in front of a huge piece of furniture TV, the one that was encased in a big wooden box, you know, and, uh, and I just remember we, we decided all of them, just three of us decided to stay up until midnight to open our gifts. We'd never done that before ever. So it was just a little bit unique in its own right. But, uh, we, I have pictures of that Christmas up on my fridge is just kind of a, um, 
a lasting memorial of the last time I had uh, something with my dad. So my mom and I took my dad to Herbert Air Force Base on January 2nd um, so that he could um, fly out to uh, Kuwait, or actually it was they were, they were in Saudi Arabia. Um, and so uh, they were at King Fahd Air Force Base, or it's a remote Air Force Base. And um, so they, they took that journey starting on the 2nd. And I can remember saying goodbye to my dad because it, it was in unique in the fact that there hadn't been a war in a while, in a while. And so they were letting families say goodbye. It wasn't normal. We didn't normally say goodbye that way, hugs and see them load all of the uh, a bags onto the, onto the pallets and, and then put the cargo nets over them and load them up. So we waited for all that until it was pretty much time to say goodbye. And I could just remember not wanting to say goodbye to my dad. I didn't, you know, for some reason, and my mom was very young. She was uh, 29 at the time and uh, she just turned 29. So very young. And, uh, so we said our goodbyes. My mom and I had been used to saying goodbye a lot on a regular basis, just for TDYs and uh, which is temporary duty assignments where my dad would go, you know, here and there and, and everywhere around the world. And the last year of his life, he had been gone about uh, half the month, every month, just working on a special project with Lockheed Martin for one of the new planes that they were uh, one of the new models of the plane he, he flew on. Um, and so you know, the, the goodbyes had been frequent, but this one just felt a little bit different. And um, so fast forward a couple of weeks and it was very hard back then because there wasn't a lot of, um, there wasn't any cell phones and there wasn't a lot of phones to be had. You had to use a sat phone to call a family and stuff like that. So even though it was a, it was a major U S temporary U S installation, um, we got the phone calls pretty infrequently. So I just happened to be at a friend's house across the street whose parent was also a uh, military officer and in a, actually a, a fighter pilot or a flyer. And, um, he wasn't gone, but they had uh, me over. It was a rainy day. Probably, I think it was around the middle of January and, uh, you know, the handheld remote control phones that we used to have on little bases all around the house. And they would, you'd catch somebody else's conversation next door or something like that. But my mom ran with the phone over across the street. It's kind of kitty corner ran over yelling and screaming. And I was like, what the hell is going on? So, She's like, your dad's on the phone. Your dad's on the phone. So I, you know, it was raining pouring. So I ran back over there so I could talk to my dad literally for less than five minutes, probably just. And I said, you know, dad, you know, what's going on? Da, da, da. And he's like, well, you know, it's going. I said, are you, are you scared? He's like, yeah, I'm scared. He's like, you'd be stupid not to be scared. He's like, you got the type of plane my dad flew. And I'll get into that in a minute uh, or that he was uh, a crewman on. Uh, saw a lot of stuff flying by all the time. So. Anyway, so uh, then fast forward a couple weeks. I only really talked to my dad one time while he was over there. And uh, fast forward to 30 January. Um, my mom had my, one of my best friends that lived across the street. His mom and my mom were prayer partners. And so every week they would meet the same day. And I don't remember what day it was. I'd have to go back in history and look at the day. But for some reason that day, the, the, uh, the morning of the 31st of January, I stayed home sick. So I guess that night I wasn't feeling well on the 30th. My mom was going to have her friend over to pray, but I was asleep on, well, laying down on the couch like any kid would do in the living room watching TV or some crap. And her friend came over and her name was Jerry. And, and it's okay if I say her name because no one would ever figure her out anyway. But, uh, but uh, she was over there, real close friends of ours, real close family friends. And my mom was in the back room changing uh, her clothes. She was, you know, her night clothes and changing into her regular clothes. And 
uh, we had big bay window in the front uh, where you could see everything in the driveway. And so my mom had the shades of, you know, the, the blinds turned. And so you see these, you see this, uh, you know, all blue vehicle pull up big, you know, late model, like Oldsmobile type military vehicle. It's like, you know, official vehicle and about three guys, guy, I think it was two or three guys. I can't remember the exact number of people right at the top of my head, but it was a significant enough people. And, um, they, uh, my friend, my friend's mom, Jerry, she saw them coming and her husband's military too. So she kind of knew that's not a good sign. If, uh, someone's pulling up and coming to your door dressed in dress blues and looking very official, especially if there's multiple of them. Uh, so they knocked on the door and my mom still was in the back and Jerry screamed. She was like, Oh no, you know, whatever it was, it's just a big gasp. And my mom was like, what's going on? And so my mom came out there, you know, not fully prepared for what she was about to encounter. And, um, I was kind of like in the whirlwind, but, uh, then they, you know, they, uh, came to the door and once the door was open, they had to read kind of what was going on. So they started reading it and it's kind of, it's a blur kind of while you're listening to it, but what they were doing was um, they weren't death notification. It wasn't a death notification. It was actually my dad and his crew of, of uh, a total of 14 guys, they were considered missing in action. So they uh, kind of get into the military piece of it just as kind of a sidebar. They, um, they, my, my dad flew AC one thirty gunships, which uh, kind of the historical name is like spooky specter, those types of things, the puff, the magic dragon. I mean, they, they have different classes and names based on model years and they started in Vietnam. They're basically C one thirties that are reef reef uh, retrofitted for, to uh, be armed reconnaissance C one thirties. And so they have a uh, well, multiple weapon system on the plane. They're used like for close air support. Correct. Close air support. Correct. So the big guns, a 105 howitzer or on the, you know, my dad's model and uh, some Gatling, some 20 millimeter Gatling guns, uh, some, uh, or some Gatling guns and a 20 millimeter shot. And I think it was two or three or, or three or four weapons on there. And uh, anyway, so you know, they, uh, and their motto was you can run, but you only die tired. Yeah. So that on their t-shirts, they have that, but, uh, so uh, fast forward to January 30th, which was the uh, night the mission took off. There were three planes in, in this mission, and it was they were uh, call sign Spirit 1, Spirit 2, and Spirit 3, Spirit 03. And um, the first two planes uh, left the King Fod Air, Air Base and got on station, which means they got to the place where they were going to orbit and um, for close air support. So... In case some of the listeners don't know, orbit just means you really are taking a circle over certain targets, and the guns are positioned. And if you look it up, if you look, if you Google AC-130 gunship, you'll be able to see what the weapon system looks like, and you'll be able to see that on the left-hand side or the pilot side, that's where they would bank, uh, and those weapons would fire at the uh, discretion of the fire control officer once they were on target. So. Yeah, that's why I can give people kind of a. You did a really good job, but the plane is is flying almost like a like a, a forty degree angle, thirty five degree angle, kind of always kind of tilted to the left side. Yes, and flies in a, in a circular pattern to provide to provide air to provide fire off the left side of the plane. Correct. Correct, and so the. Uh, the two planes, Spirit 1 and 2, um, 
they uh, they needed another one of them had to go back. Okay, there was there's a bingo fuel situation where they needed to get back. And so Spirit Zero Three was called to be on station. And this is kind of just in my own words, not the not the full story of, you know, technical story, but in my own words. So, well, hang on. You said um, they were bingo on fuel. You want to let people know what bingo means in military they were, they, were, they were out of fuel. It's time right. to get back. There you go. Uh, yeah, time to get back to, t- uh, to to base before they they ran out of fuel and crashed. But um, so my dad's plane, Spirit Zero Three, they took off to uh, bring some more close air support. Okay, and so the close air support that they were providing was for um, the Battle of Kafji. So this was the Battle of Kafji, which is in Kuwait. It's a it was a um, resort town in Kuwait. It's a border town, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait bordered. And this would be like going into like a really nice area of Kuwait where very wealthy people would resort at and things of that nature. But an Iraqi tank division had pinned down some Marines in this town and they could not get out of this town. They were pinned in. And so to be able to get some relief, they called in some close air support. And so these two planes were, you know, firing at, at will or, you know, in, in, in as they were being called upon by these Marines to uh, destroy what they needed to destroy to, to alleviate the, the problem. So the, uh, the, uh, the, my dad's uh, coworkers on the other plane, they, uh, it was, it was becoming light. Uh, it was about to become twilight and um, the sun was rising. So that's not good for someone that's for a big circular pattern plane at 9,000 feet. Okay. And so they, hey, hey, we're going back. We're being called back. We're going back. My dad's team decided to stay on station, even though all of the parameters weren't in their favor because these Marines, it was either the Marines losing their lives or, you know, them staying on station. So they had pretty much cleared everything out as far as the issues that were going on over there. And then, um, at some point right before daylight, um, as the sun was rising, it was approximately six o'clock local time, six thirty local time, somewhere around there. Uh, they got hit in uh, a wing, a fuel tank at, uh, about 9,000 feet. And they, um, normally in, in a situation where you get hit in a wing or get hit in a fuel solage or something like that, you have time to exit, throw on a parachute and get out and you lower the door, everybody runs out or whatever, because you may have, may or may not have time, but uh, most times you get, you get hit with something small, you can bail. Well, what happened in this situation, they had, they got hit with a frog missile, which is a surface to air shoulder uh, propelled grenade or rocket, I guess you would call it uh, surface to air missile, same type of thing. Uh, but it was held on someone's shoulder and uh, it, that fuel tank catching on fire broke the wing off, which caused a spiral, an inverted dive that they couldn't recover from. There was a mayday call, um, a mayday call, um, a shout over the microphone, and then they hit the ocean floor at full speed. So um, they, the reason, and and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but the reason why they, I'm backtracking a little bit is giving you a little bit of that story is, the uh, the missing in action piece uh, designation um, was real because they could not get to, to a crash site or find a crash site because 
there was a heated battle going on at that time. Um, and they were about, if my, if I'm remembering correctly, about a hundred yards off the beach, um, in, in a very shallow area. And, um, but the, any type of search was, um, didn't yield anything for a while. When they finally did find the plane by aerial surveillance, they definitely, they got a barge out there and were able to collect the plane. And uh, they were able to recover a wing, uh, part of a wing, part of, part of a fuselage. It was, it was crumpled on each other pretty, pretty heavily. I mean, it was, it was disintegrated pretty bad. It was just very few pieces. Uh, No bodies were uncovered or recovered, excuse me, because of the length of time that they were out there. And, um, and so, um, we had that first notification of missing in action on January 31st, and we didn't get another final notification till later that spring. I would say, I want to say it was around May that my dad was buried. I'd have to check with my mom on that. So just think of how many months you go through that. And, um, you know, Desert Storm, they had, um, I think I'd have to go back and check what they had about, um, they had a handful or maybe a dozen uh, prisoners, prisoners of war, maybe it was 15. I can't remember. And nobody knew who they were because Iraq wasn't giving up that information. And, um, they couldn't, they didn't know that my dad's team was deceased yet. So they they thought this number of people could be this group. So, you know, your heart's getting torn to pieces because you're thinking, this could be, this could be. And then if you go back and, and look at history, they actually televised the release of the prisoners, the American prisoners. And um, one by one, after one by one, none of them were our guys. I mean, that really, you you kind of knew, man, this, you know, this, that was it. So I remember my granny, my granny lives in Florida and uh, this, this, we were all living in Florida at the time, but my granny was with my mom and we were watching this prisoner release and you could just, my mom just melted, man. It was incredible. So, um, it was kind of a finality of like, man, it's, you know, they're not coming back. You know what I mean? So you got 14 families, uh, affected. You have, uh, some unborn children still in the womb, um, that never met their dads. Um, and, uh, so that just, that whole thing right there was, was pretty incredible. There were, like I said, there were 14 crew members. And, um, they, uh, so there was a, there's a pilot, a co-pilot, a flight engineer and, um, several different other, um, positions on the plane. And there, so you had back then it was a sensor operator and a fire control officer, a navigator. My dad was a, was a, was a trained navigator, but his, job on this plane was the fire control officer, which once the, uh, once the target um, was honed in on, my dad would give the okay for the weapons in the back to be fired and he would control the guns from the front, even though there were gunners and um, you know, you had gunners and loadmasters and all that kind of stuff because you're dealing with heavy, heavy brass back there. And it just takes a lot of people to, um, to do that. But uh, yeah, it's, it was, it was, um, it was a hard time of being, being 11 years old and 
um, kind of losing your dad and, and knowing what, um, you know, know all the things that, that you would think you'd grow up with. And, and, um, I don't know. So it's just, uh, it was, it was a really tough time to, um, to grow up without a parent, especially, um, that young. And, and I was lucky that, you know, I got to know my dad. Some of these kids didn't get to know their dad at all. So spirit zero three tail number six, nine, six, five, six, seven of the 16th special operations squadron based at Herbert field of Florida became the seventh AC one thirty aircraft to be lost in combat. Uh, they were lost on January 31st, 1991. And uh, the crew members of Spirit 03 were uh, Major Paul Weaver, Captain Cliff Bland, Captain Arthur Galvin, Captain William Grimm, Captain Dixon Walters, Senior Master Sergeant Paul Biggie, Senior Master Sergeant James May, Tech Sergeant Robert Hodges, Tech Sergeant John Oschlager, Staff Sergeant John Blessinger, Staff Sergeant Timothy Harrison, Staff Sergeant Damon Kanuha, Staff Sergeant Mark Schmaus, and Sergeant Barry Clark. So those 14 guys gave, you know, paid the ultimate sacrifice, not just for their country, but for the other Marines that were on the ground. So that those guys could go back to their families. And um, we recently just in January had a memorial. I was, I guess that was 30 year memorial that um, uh, it was a zoom meeting, obviously, because normally we would do it in, in person on those decade um, anniversaries. But because of COVID because, because of the pandemic, we, we did a zoom meeting there. I think there were over close to, I, I want to say close to 400 people joined the zoom call and you had, um, you had retired uh, generals, you had, uh, base commanders you had squadron commanders you had uh former crewmates teammates all that kind of stuff and first for people and you know this happens more often than than not but uh for people to remember the sacrifice 30 years later you know it, it says a lot about the love that um and the respect that they have for this crew and this crew did uh, a phenomenal job uh defending um, another branch of the military, uh, protecting them. And really at the end of the day, it's about getting home to your family and that's what they helped them do. Um, so all, all politics aside, you know, all, uh, things aside, it's, it's really about your brother and, and it's a camaraderie. I mean, I'm, I'm friends with my dad's friends, you know, I'm friends on, you know, all the guys that flew with him or worked with him, you know, I've got ties to them and that's, that's uncommon in the regular work world. You know, it's not as common, but this is like a brotherhood, you know, and, and they, every year they do a, uh, they call it a shoot and a shot, you know, or a shot and a shot where they, they're firing a commemorative weapon uh, 14 times and taking 14, you know, each person's taking a shot. So they, they do that every year and then they have the big ones on the decade years, but um After they, uh, after my dad's stuff came home, I would say I got his A bag back. Um, when did I get that back? 
Well, anyway, we got it back. An A bag is just a big duffel bag that's got all their personal possessions in. And <coughs> excuse me, went through it, you know, and you know, it just it's it was kind of surreal because all the things that we had sent him, like in in this little obviously is the nineties, but his game boy that, that, you know, I wasn't even allowed to have a game boy, <laughs> you know, I, my parents wouldn't even get me a game boy, but because he was going overseas, you know, they wanted. And do you remember this? You could hook two game boys up together uh-huh. and play like football or yep. whatever. Link cord. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, uh, his buddy, his, his buddy's still alive. Uh, Gary, I won't give the last name, but Gary is still alive and best friends with my dad. And they would, different did different jobs but they were there at the same time doing in the same area and they'd play game boy together and do some stuff and so getting that back getting a camera back it was you know it was a it was a zip and, and shoot camera plastic piece of crap you know but developing the film you know i still have those pictures and i i post those on special days on on facebook just to to show uh how much i miss my dad and how much i love him but um those guys were special cut down on their prime uh, my dad was 33, and he was a decorated military officer and served in multiple conflicts. And he was a um, master uh, of inter- his his degree was uh, international relations. He was a master from Troy State University, had a master's degree at 33. He was the first person in his family to graduate from college. He was a second generation Mexican American. His dad came over to America on the belly of a train at 15 and his uh, mom was a Mexican Indian and um, had him very young. And um, so just that immediate legacy of, of patriation and then uh, dying for your country, you know, whatever that means and dying for his brothers and, and, or, you know, offering himself up, I guess is, is the, is the thing. And I can remember the, I can remember standing Coming coming home one day, right before my my dad knew he was going to go, he just got the information that he was going to go over to the desert. And I can picture this. Uh, my parents, for some reason, I have no idea why they would do this. It sounds so stupid, but they had an answering machine in their bedroom. Like I tell, I guess everybody had a telephone or an answering machine, but I would never have an answering machine in my bedroom. Anyway, that's where mom kept hers growing up. Was in the is bedroom. it really? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and was it a tape that you had to like read yeah. or fast forward? Yeah, a little, little cassette like, tape. Yeah, thinking yeah. about it now, I'm like, why in the hell would you keep a uh, Answering machine you in the know, bedroom. <laughs> answering machine in the bedroom. But anyway, came down the hall in the house we lived at. My bedroom was on one side of the hall. My dad's, my parents' bedroom, Master Richard was on the other side. And walked in with my dad. He was in his flight suit and um, threw that answering machine on. My grandma was over here wailing on the on the answering machine. Oh, I don't want you to go. And talking to him in, in Spanish and all this kind of stuff. So my dad calls her back. He's like, oh, he's like, stop freaking out or whatever he's told her. He's like, I'll be fine. I'll be back. You know, this is nothing, whatever. And I can just my dad thought he was coming back. Yeah. You know, he, he really he thought he was coming back. And uh, and um, I, I, I don't know why that is burned in my mind, but it really is. And just a funny story. My, uh, mil- anytime military people go overseas, they have to get a series of shots or a series of inoculations and things like that. My dad had a little, uh, what was it? It was a... Uh, it was a Mazda pickup truck, but it was like a B2000. It was like an extended cab with, it didn't have like rhino turf in the back. It had the old plastic like slotted yep. thing. And so my dad and I would always ride around. So he had me ride in the, normally he'd make me ride in the back if we were going somewhere. 
in the, actually in the back of the bed. That's when you could do that to kids. But <laughs> this time we were in the, in the, uh, I was in the cab with him and, uh, we were on base and he's like, Hey, I got to stop over here and get some shots. And he's like, but I don't want you coming in here. My dad was always annoyed with me. He's don't come in here. You're going to make too much noise or whatever, you know, act crazy, or whatever. So he came out laughing and I said, what's so funny? He's like, Oh man, you're not going to believe it. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I was getting a shot in my ass and I farted on the lady. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, that's what I guess what that's what they get since I'm I'm having to get uh a series of shots. Anyway, it was hilarious. My dad wasn't a funny person like that. To me, he was very strict, authoritarian and you know, by the book, uh special operator and you know, everything had to be in its place and all that kind of good stuff. So um but uh you know the just to kind of get back on track a little bit, so they they had um they have the pieces, just say it that way, of the bodies that were left, the remains, um, and they were pretty much unidentifiable. So when they got to Dover, uh, which is where Mortuary Affairs is, they uh, they said, hey, we want to have a mass grave with one stone with all the names on it at Arlington. And... Uh, <clears throat> They said the wives are like, no, we don't want that. We want our own funerals. We want our own memorials, all this kind of stuff. And so they petitioned the uh, the government, and it was the first time in American history that there was an allotment. So literally, they divided up the pieces so everyone could have a funeral. So really don't know who's buried in what. And... Um, so everybody got a headstone. So a lot of the guys are buried at uh, Pensacola Naval Air Station or Fort Barrancas just because that was a national cemetery in our area. And a couple of the guys are buried in Arlington. Uh, I know Dixon Walters is buried in Arlington, and I can't remember who the other guy. But um, it's a very pre- prestigious uh, place to be buried in Arlington. But at the time, we lived in, in Florida, and we wanted to. We thought we were always going to live there. You, you always think that. But uh, So I've been there uh, a couple times since my dad died. And since I moved from Florida, I moved from Florida when I was 13. So, um, and I didn't go back. I don't think I actually went back until 2015. So, um, my kids were able to go with me, uh, my mom and get some pictures. And, uh, and it was, it was, you know, they, they go every year, put stuff on, on the, the guys are all lined up there. And so they can all be visited together. But, um, it was pretty incredible, man. That's uh, it's kind of the story of what happened. Um, but then the aftermath, you know, you kind of grow up. I don't know. Everyone has a has a growing up story beyond the initial event that causes the story. And you know, I've I've always had this feeling of um, unrest, like almost not not able to let it go you know what i mean yeah. and, and i'm not saying it should be let go but i remember a time in my life where I'm like man i got i can't i gotta stop letting this define me you know what i mean mm-hmm. like i can't let everything i do and everything i you know all of the all my thoughts and actions be because of this or you know be somehow tied into it or be known as the guy whose dad died you know what i mean i, yeah. I wanted to be you yeah. know or jay you want to cut that out? <laughs> I will. Uh, but 
And it, it's it's been hard because you, you get a lot of people, you know, it's that hero syndrome almost. Yeah. Like, hey, your dad's a hero. You know, so you hear that all the time, you know. You hear that all the time. And uh, he was a hero. You know, he is a hero in my eyes. But um, it's almost like you can't get out of that spot. You know, you're like stuck in that spot. Like you're, you're being chased by would, a ghost at all times, pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. I know my dad wouldn't want me to be like that. You right. Know I mean? But um so I'm, I'm tr- as I'm getting older and I'm in my forties now, I, I feel like the honor and respect that I can give the, the event and, and to my dad can kind of be, um, you know, tempered with the, uh, the knowledge that I have my own family. Now my family's counting on me and my family needs me to be present and needs me to be their hero. You know what I mean? So, um, but man, you got to respect these guys. They 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 came from all backgrounds, all different types of histories, and all the way from a really young guy to a guy that was just about to retire. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally about to retire. And um, well, another guy who was so scared, he gave his wings. He went to the commander, gave his wings, and they. He didn't want to get in trouble. The, the The team didn't want him to get in trouble, man. So, like, cajoled him back into taking his wings back, man, and, you know, cost him his life. So, I mean, you know, you, those stories are never told out in public, but those are the real stories that guys go through, that the angst they have, the decision-making they have to make, and the things that, um, that are hard on them, you know. So, and mind you, it was – if if the listeners would go back and remember in the nineties during, during desert storm, there was a lot of scud missile attack threats. And so these guys are tired from being awake in the middle of the night, trying to get all this gear on all the time, then trying to get back to sleep, then going to fly, you know, then being hotter than all get out over there being bored sometimes. I mean, it's just so many things that you, you don't see or know about that these guys go through and, and, uh, they had to drink. They had to drink so much water. The heat was outstanding. They yeah. had to drink literally pallets of water per week just to stay hydrated. You know what I mean? They were sweating it out like crazy. So, but um, yeah. So I mean, it's it was an, an incredible time in our lives. Um, they have uh, several uh, retired aircraft now that are in boneyards, um, uh, New Mexico, Arizona. I know Arizona has a boneyard at Davis Monthan Air Force Base that um, that has one of the sister planes, or I can call it sister plane or whatever. And uh, they have one on display at Hurlburt that uh, is an older, like uh, Vietnam era uh, version. And um, so, I mean, you can you can still see these in, in museums and things of that nature, and look at them online. And, there's new models coming out every every so often, and the newest model out there is very deadly. Um, very, uh, they they learn. I guess what one cool thing is they learned so much from uh, this situation, this um, event that they were able to get better. They used it as a learning experience and get better over time. So that's that's at least one good thing out of it. Now there was another incident uh, a couple of years after in Somalia. Or uh, no, it was a small. It was Africa. It was Africa of some sort. I can't remember now. But um, about the whole black Black Hawk Down incident. No, it wasn't the Black Hawk Down. Oh, was incident. That an it was an AC one thirty incident. Yeah, it was an AC one thirty gunship. It was in Africa somewhere. I can't remember exactly where at. But uh, 
they had, I think they had a, a 105 round blow up in the chamber. Oh no. Caught, Gosh. And caught up. Yeah. caught up on, I think it caught and caught the plane, the back of the plane off. And they, uh, half of them lived, but half of them died oh. uh, around half of them. So it's those two events were so close together. It really hurt the squadron pretty bad. Not morally, you know, demoralized them a little bit, but they got better. They haven't lost anything since. Um, and, uh, yeah, I would imagine, I mean, AC-130 guys are special operators. I mean, that, that's a very select group of guys who are on those planes. Um, so I, I, I imagine it's a very tight-knit community. So when you lose 14 or 7 at a time, it, it's got to hit the whole, not just the Air Force community, but the special operations community within the Air Force very hard. Definitely. And um, some of these guys were specialized outside of their flying uh, credentials. Like my dad was a jump. He was a, he had his, he had his jump wings. He was, he could jump. He was, he was a master jumper. And uh, he was also, my dad went into the military in 1977, uh, right out of high school. And um, he went in as an enlisted guy, but he, he got an opportunity to go to Troy state university and become the ROTC Corps commander and get his commission. So he went in as enlisted, got out, got his commission or got his degree in his commission and went back in as an officer. So he was loved by both enlisted and officers. And that's a big deal in the military oh, community. Yeah. And my dad was, my dad was part of a combat control team in the air force before he, before he became an officer. So he, not only was he enlisted, he was a combat control team member. Uh, he was a, a military officer, a flyer. So he kind of ran the gamut with all that. And he was just about to be promoted to major um, before he died. So he, he was, he was on his way up the chain. Did you want to talk about your friend you lost more recently? Who's buried at Arlington? Yeah. I lost a friend of mine, a, a wrestling buddy of mine. He was a kind of a peer mentor, a little bit older than me, a few years older than me. And, um, I had moved to Alaska in, um, 1994 or 90, late 93 or 94. I can't remember exactly what, what year it was. But uh, anyway, my freshman year of high school, I was going to a new uh, school up there, small school, private school, and um, never did any type of sports outside of soccer and baseball, um, you know, at the at the military youth level, you know, just kind of on base and stuff like that. And um, all the guys rallied over to my house on base and they were like, Hey, we want you to, we want you to do some wrestle. We want you to wrestle. I'm like, what's wrestling. <laughs> and so I got baptized into, uh, into wrestling and actually had a very good team. But this guy was, uh, took me under his wing. It was kind of like one of those guys who would, uh, um, he would just uh, be a natural leader, natural mentor, and and um, he got me into wrestling. His his dad was a friend, is still a friend of mine, and uh, taught me all the, showed me all the ropes, and got me interested in it. And then, um, so we did. We were a really successful wrestling team. And fast forward, he graduates high school, and my stepdad, who uh, was an Air Force Academy graduate, and so my mom remarried three years later and married my stepdad, who was an Air Force Academy graduate, and since. He was my friend, along with a few other guys that went to school with me, um, were kind of trying to learn the ropes of how, how it worked, how you could get uh, a um, invite to the academies. 
And so this guy ended up going to the academy, Air Force Academy, and graduating and um, kind of lost track of his, you know, day-to-day scenario and ends up that uh, he was literally at the end of his life right down the road for me about 20 minutes for uh, the last year or more. And um, I, I was looking at uh, something on the news, local news, and I'm like, what the heck, man? What's going on over here? And uh, somebody had gotten uh, murdered. And um, they got ran over a couple times on purpose. And uh, uh, ended up seeing something that tied it into to how I knew him, something on social media. And I'm like, is this, is this right? You know? And so then I saw, you know, it develop and anyway, so I reconnected with his parents while they were here at that point and um, really got to talk a lot about how, what a leader this guy was and what a, uh, um, a mentor he was for me and all that. So I had the opportunity by invitation just because of COVID, it was very few people and I had the opportunity and the pleasure and the, and the great honor to be able to go up to Arlington in August. Uh, It had been about a year and a few, you know, almost a year and a half after he died before they could bury him just because of some certain things. So uh, got the opportunity to do that and, and just walking through those hallowed, hallowed grounds is is incredible. If anybody's ever wondered if they should take the trip to Arlington, to it's not like an amusement park or anything like that. But it's like that type of fun. But it's it's more of like a uh, you're walking amongst the greats of all time. You know what I mean? Like uh, the great the, the great the great generals, man. The great colonels all the way down to the the smallest private. I mean, to be honest with you, there's even women there that did some outstanding stuff that you would never even think that, you know, think about like People at a time know, like world war two and things like that. I mean, the way stuff like that, the women did during world war two, yeah. there was a lot of, it was, during world war two, there was sacrifice across the board. Mm-hmm. And just to be able to honor those people and in, I'm a, I'm a history buff anyway, but going to look at those stones and like, man, what, what did this life mean? You know, and who was standing around this grave at one time grieving this person's loss and what impact did that loss have beyond just the loss itself? You know what I mean? What did it do? And, and there's, there's cemeteries everywhere, but these people, you know, and you hear this a lot, but it's, it's true. They volunteered themselves for the greater good, whether that, uh, whatever that means to, to the individual person. But to me, it means that, Hey, I'm going to put others above myself and, uh, whatever the outcome is, I accept, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's a beautiful area. I mean, um, so yeah, that's, yep. uh, that's that part. So yeah, he, this guy was an incredible, athlete my friend and an incredible leader and it, something really bad happened to him and uh just got to show our respect so you you get the combat guy that dies in combat and you got the guy that still serves and added value to the to the nation in, in his own right and then uh, they still get the same honor the same uh dignity by by uh 
the internment there at, at those special areas. But, um, you know, I, so, I yeah. live, I live around a lot of, um, civil war battlefields, a lot of civil war skirmish areas. Uh, of course there's markers up for them, but there's one, it was a really big battle during the civil war, pretty close to me. And, um, we went up there a few years back uh, for Memorial Day. And there's a lot of graves there, of course. Um, and it's kind of what you said. No matter where you stand politically or on what side you fall politically, you know, those, most of those guys who are buried at those battlefields, they were fighting for a reason. Whether, mm-hmm. whether it be um, to serve their country or whether it be to protect their home or whether it be whatever, those guys had a reason they were there. And when they pay that cost, you should show some respect. Yeah. Whether you, you know, I don't agree with war at all, you know, but it takes a special breed like your dad put on that flight suit and get on that plane and go off into the sky. Um, I got friends of mine who've served on all branches and um, I I got a really good friend of mine. um, I met just a few years ago. Uh, He was a force recon Marine. He was in Mogadishu during the whole black Hawk Mm -hmm. down thing. Um, Whether I agree with where he stands politically is not, not a matter. He had the guts to put the boots on, grab his rifle and go help somebody. Um, so I think that's really what I wanted to get across for Memorial Day, really, is that we shouldn't worry so much about if the guy who is holding the gun is a Republican or Democrat or independent or whatever. Um, we should show a little respect for the dead. And that that's that's just... When somebody is killed um, serving their country, um, they might not have wanted to be there, but they did their job. That's right. Um, like you said, you know, you asked your dad if he was scared. Yeah, I'm scared. You know, but he put on that flat suit and gritted his teeth and went and did his job. Yeah, and and that's that's what you expect. It's made I mean, that me and Tink have talked a number of times about different countries and their and their militaries and um you know that's that's one of the one of the good things about the u.s military it's all volunteers that those guys weren't forced to go join they made the decision on their own yep and when you have a volunteer force like that you know they made that choice they said i'll go you know um was there anything else that you wanted to bring up tonight? Yeah, I wanted to uh, – let me read this citation. Please go right uh, ahead. Yeah. So my dad my dad earned the Silver Star and the Purple Heart in this uh, in the Battle of Kavchi. And uh, I'll just read the uh, Silver Star citation uh, issued by the Department of Air Force. Um On April 19th, 1991, the president of the United States of America authorized by act of Congress, July 9th, 1918, amended by 
Act of July 25th, 1963, takes pride in presenting the Silver Star posthumously to Captain Arthur Galvin, United States Air Force, for gallantry in connection with military operations against the forces of the Republic of Iraq. While serving as fire control officer of AC-130H gunship, Spectre gunship, Spirit 03 of the 16th Special Operations Squadron, U.S. Air Force Special Operations Command in action near the Kuwaiti border while supporting U.S. supporting U.S. Marine Corps operations during the first Iraq offensive on January 31, 1991. On that date, while performing an operation, Desert Storm, AC-130H armed reconnaissance mission, Captain Galvin was tasked to engage a free rocket over ground missile site. As the fire control officer, Captain Galvin monitored all weapon systems, and upon his confirmation of the target, the pilot began firing 40 and 105 millimeter munitions at the missiles while engaging the target. The aircrew received heavy fire from numerous anti-aircraft artillery fire sites. His courageous and aggressive attack continued while under unceasing anti-aircraft artillery fire, preventing a missile attack on Allied coalition forces. The actions of Captain Galvin added the Allied forces in repelling the Iraqi army incursion south into the Saudi Arabia border town of Kafji. The professional competence, aerial skill, and devotion to duty displayed by Captain Galvin and the dedication of this service to his country reflect great credit upon himself and the United States Air Force. That's awesome, man. Um, you got your drink? I got it, man. Okay. Uh, I'm really glad that you read their names. That's something I was, I was, I was going to ask you to do anyway, because I believe in, in, um, Speaking of people's names, it it puts a it puts a, a face to what people go through. It puts a name to what people go through. And um, I'm gonna speak the name of William Davis. He was um, the only son of my grandparents' friends, and he joined the army at a high school in the seventies. And was shipped to Vietnam and didn't last long. He was killed in action in Vietnam. Um, so to your father and his crewmen and to Private First Class William Davis, cheers. Cheers. And if you're listening out there, um, And there's somebody close to you. Uh, take this time to say their name and remember what they've done for this country. Jay, I love you, man. Love you too, brother. Thanks for uh, letting us do this, man. Oh, for sure. Very special. Absolutely. And I love all y'all out there for listening. Have a good night.